Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company, who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. Enjoy the podcast. This programme has been brought to you by the Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Good early evening and late afternoon, dear listeners. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and um, you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 21st of May, 2023. You can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is GCSE exams in MFL. Welcome! So, good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 38th radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any new potential listener. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both humanities and languages. I teach French and Spanish, KS3 and 4, and also geography and history, KS3. I have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at profprofmfl. All views are my own. So today we'd like to focus on one topic that is extremely relevant, particularly these two weeks, the last and the next coming. Uh, it is relevant to me as an educator and also as a parent. The podcast will be on the topic of GCSE exams with the GCSE MFL in particular. So this podcast is mostly relevant to parents who have children who are in secondary schools or um, primary schools as well, living in the UK. Anyone who is not uh, really aware of what the UK system is as far as exams and education is concerned, but also to people who might not have set their own GCSEs. And any language students or teaching students who would like to know more about the intricacies of preparing for a language exam. And of course, the curious and savvy. So what does GCSE stand for? There's plenty of acronyms in the education sector, so it's always good to go back to the full words. So GCSE stands for the General Certificate of Secondary Education. It is an academic qualification which can be done in a range of subjects and it is taken in England, in Wales and in Northern Ireland. But it can also be taken abroad if your school 
is following the UK educational system. Now, how is it graded? Um, it used to be graded in letters where a U would be the worst grade possible. I would say a U would be allocated to someone who just gives uh, hands out an empty copy with just their names on it. And then it would go from U all the way up towards an A and beyond A for excellent copies, it would be an A star. So this was the old grade system. It changed in 2014. It changed from a letter system to a numerical grading system. And this change was decided by the, the then education secretary, who was called Michael Gove. So from 2014, we have a different system. So we kept the worst grade being a U. And then we switch to new numbers. So we go from one all the way up to nine. So the best grade is a nine and um, the lowest possible grade remains a U. What is considered a pass grade? Um, it used to be a C in the old uh, number uh, letter system. And now the equivalent in that numerical grading system is a three. So if you have from U, one, two, or three, you will not be considered as pass in your subject. You need to have a three and above, so from three to nine, to be considered as successful sitting your GCSE. So for a standard pass, students will need to at least have a four grade. So to be on the safe side, you should definitely aim for a four. A five is a strong pass and above five, you're secure, you have passed. Overall grades, four, five is uh, the the best you can get if you want to pass. And then from six, you get into the better grades, which are the equivalent to B and C in the old grading system. So what's a great grade? Um, well, it really depends on what you um, want to do in the future and also on your abilities. Um, I have students for whom a four in their GCSE would be excellent because of their skills and abilities. And I have some students for whom a four would be catastrophic because I know they can do way better. And also I know that they want to um, maybe go on to university and study the subject. So it really depends on the person. And it's not one uh, grade that fits all, if I may say. So an excellent grade uh, for everybody would be a seven for sure. Because once you reach a seven, it's the equivalent of an A or from seven to nine, A to A star in the old system. And it means that you have mastered your subject and that if you apply to go to your preferred college or university or sixth form, I should say, this will be considered as a positive um, grade to have. Now, on average, students do not just take a few of these GCSE exams, they take a lot of them. So the UK average is 10 subjects. So it means 10 different subjects have to be learned, prepared, and then there will be grades on these 10 subjects. But remember, these 10 subjects might have different papers. So there might be way more uh, actual um, times when the student has to sit for an exam. More, way more than 10. So some subjects have a lot of different exam papers. I'll give you an example. The 
language subject has four different papers, I may say. So it's it means that some students, some of my students, particularly the high achievers who have kept a lot of subjects going, are going to sit more than 30 exams this year. 30. It's a huge amount of stress, a huge amount of preparation, and a huge amount of time when things can go wrong. So just bear in mind, 10 subjects per UK student on average, and way more actual exams. So let's look at the compulsory subjects. Now, in the UK, you cannot uh, get any GCSEs unless you have sat these three subjects they are compulsory whether you like it or not you have to do them and these are the compulsory subjects in maths english and science every uk student has to have a math english and science gcse exam now you also have foundation subjects such as computing PE, physical education, and citizenship. And to that, you need to add um, the optional ones. Depending on your school, they might also be compulsory. But there is arts, DT, which stands for design and technology, and then humanities and modern foreign languages. By humanities, we uh, understand history, geography, or religious education. So in year nine, so when the students are 13, they will have to choose options. If you have a child who's a high achiever, very academic and wants to take more options, it is possible. I have students in my school who are actually taking statistics, um, a GCSE in statistics in year 10. So they are already doing exams even though they are a bit younger than the the normal age so it really depends some students will have a lot of gcses and others might just do four or five if they their skills can't allow them to have more so the big question because currently we have a whole generation of children who are sitting for the gcses they are uh, obviously um, survivors and by that i mean that they are children who went through a pandemic a global pandemic there are children who might have suffered greatly during the pandemic i have had students who have lost a parent during the pandemic due to covid i have had students who have um their parents who split up because the lockdown and the confinement was too much of a strain on the family dynamics. So our students have gone through a major historical upheaval and yet they have to sit this exam the same way other students did in the 90s or in the 80s or in the noughties when they hadn't had such a difficult event to contend with. So. I consider my students survivors. They've had two years of very disrupted education. They've had two lockdowns, some more. Um, I know that in the north of England, some towns had longer lockdowns. So we need to bear in mind that our 16-year-old kids this year are sitting through their exams and they have had a very tough time in the previous year. So we definitely have to remember this when we consider their GCSEs. So do GCSE grades matter? Well, yes and no. 
Um, yes, they matter because obviously they are a national uh, academic measurement of a child's education. They are understood by most uh, employers. They can be used as a tool to differentiate people if we want to select them to go on to further education or if we want to select someone to hire. So GCSE grades matter because they are used as a reference and they, um, they can lead to someone being employed after the age of 16, after their GCSEs, students can um, join the workforce or they can also be counted for people who want to apply to a sixth form or later on if they want to go to university. So these grades are used as a benchmark to see how people cope with their numeracy, literacy, and their general knowledge. Without the necessary qualifications, so if you can't achieve a, a pass, which is more than a three in maths, English, and science, you might really, really struggle to get a job later on you might really 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 struggle to get um, even if you want to do an apprenticeship or a vocational uh, trade you might really struggle to get where you want to so in that way the GCSE is like um, a, a stamped certificate that allows you to open many doors however when you study more and if you go on to university, if you do a license degree and then a master's and then a PhD, etc., your GCSE grades will compare comparatively not bear that much importance later on. So it all depends on your pathway, how far you want to go in studying, and also your um, your life opportunities. But can I just remind you that? Even if you are um, someone who graduated from a university abroad, as I did, you might be asked to prove that you have GCSEs or equivalents. And because of Brexit legislation, uh, for instance, I wanted to do an apprenticeship and my university grades were not accepted because they're from a foreign university, the Sorbonne, which is a Pari Parisian university. And I had to reset an exam to prove that I had a certain level in mathematics and English. So I had to reset something similar to a GCSE. So yes, these GCSEs do matter in the long run. You can find yourself in your 40s having to prove that you have a certain level corresponding to the GCSE level. To join a sixth form, which is usually the next step in a student's educational path, the students need to pass some subjects. So they have to pass, which is uh, get more than a, around a grade four. They need to have a grade four in maths, in science, and in English. It's very um, scientifically orientated um, in the UK. So I'll give you an example. If your child is a dancer and wants to study drama and performing arts at college, I have checked because um, I have a child who is a, a dancer and I asked uh, when I asked um, when I went to a student fair and I asked the sixth form, what sort of subjects are you looking for in GCSEs to allow a student to join your sixth form? And I was told that a child wanting to do performing arts and drama or dance would have to have a four in maths, English 
and science. Um, as I said, these three subjects are the benchmarks for um, education in the UK. So I can understand that you need to show you have obtained that certain level after spending so many years in school. Now, what I did not understand, though, is when I asked the sixth form college, do you have to have a GCC in dance or drama to study dance or drama at sixth form college? And I was told, no, you don't. You only need English, maths and science. So I'm sure there might be a logic in that, but I wasn't really convinced by these requirements. But I just wanted you to be aware that these GCSEs in these three subjects have more power than other GCSEs in that sense. Because if your child has a seven or a nine in drama, music and dance, but failed at English, maths and science, your child might not get a place at a, a sixth form to do drama perform, uh, performance and um, music. So it's really important you are aware of this. And if your child is struggling in English, maths and science, you really need to put an intervention in place so that you can be sure your child will have a grade four at their GCSEs. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Because as we see, the GCSE has a power over our, our students' lives. Depending on the course your child is choosing to study, or if they want to apply to a very successful and popular Russell Group University, entry grades need to vary greatly from a pass, which is a four, all the way up to a nine or from seven to nine. So you as a parent and you as a young person need to really check what you want to do or what your child wants to do and then make very crucial decision as early as in year nine because it might have a detrimental um, aspect or influence on your child's um, success rates for entry in these institutions following um, their GCSEs. After GCSE is really what matters, we focus at this time of year on obtaining GCSEs, revising for GCSEs, but we forget that GCSEs are just a stamp on a certificate. What matters is the path ahead afterwards. So after GCSEs, there's many, many, way, many ways and many options. Some of my students, after their GCSEs last year, decided to join the workforce and they're now working in a restaurant and they're really happy never to set foot in a learning institution again. Others have um, planned already that they want to become a doctor or a computer scientist and they know they're in for the long run, they know they have to get A-levels and they know they have to apply to university. So, and then other students didn't really want to focus on um, learning a subject. They wanted to go and learn a trade. So they went and did a beautician course or uh, working in um, the medical field. So it really is a varied 
what students do after their GCSEs. But either way, it is important to remember that maths, English and science will still have more power over the ch your children's pathways than any other subject. Um, saying that, in most companies, they will check English, maths and science GCSE results, but they might also want to see that your child has done more um, in some um, trades, they might be looking for an, a future employee who can speak another language, or um, they might want someone who has studied um, DT or food technology, if it's in ser the service industry, for instance. So it's really important to keep all options open. And this is why we advise in, in my school, we advise students to do more GCSEs than required. You have two different choices as a school when you offer GCSEs for your students. You can offer them to just focus on the compulsory ones, or you can try and push them to add more G GCSEs to set more exams. So we decided in my school to offer the International uh, Baccalaureate, which is inspired by the French Baccalauréat. The French Baccalauréat has many, many subjects and they all matter relatively to one another. So the English version of it or the international version of it is to study uh, six subjects. So um, we make sure at A-levels that the students are going to do six subjects. So for their GCSEs, they need more than 10. We have compulsory languages in my school currently. The children do not have a choice. They have to do a language. And um, they also are offered to do statistics in year 10. So we prepare them a bit earlier. And we are now also going to trial preparing them to do RE in year 10. So it means that some of our students will already have their RE or statistics GCSEs done by the end of year 10 before they go into year 11 to sit for the other GCSEs. It is a choice. It is quite high for expectations, but I do believe that it gives more opportunities to the children. If they can show that they have 10 to 12 subjects covered, they might be um, more performing. They might perform better when uh, they face an employee, an employer. So how do you guide your child or how do you guide your students when they have to choose their GCSE subject. So every educator in the UK is very much aware that this is a decision that needs to be made early. So in year nine, we already train our students to be aware of the life-changing decisions they're going to make. We organize careers fair, we invite employers, local employers, we invite uh, six form representatives to come and talk to our students. And we do try to really show to our students that the more subjects they, they select, the better, because it allows them to keep many, many doors opened. If you restrict yourself to doing only four GCSEs or five GCSEs, or at worst three, you are closing so many doors already. You are narrowing your options. So definitely we advise um, more 
subjects. So it depends on what career you want to do. Obviously, if you are adamant you want to work in the army or if you want to be a medic, you might not need performing arts uh, or drama or uh, a music GCSE as much as you would need maths, biology, science, the combined science. But you still might also benefit from doing something creative, particularly if you have to speak in public. And in that sense, drama is really good for debating. So it's definitely better to keep GCSE option open. Now, if you really hate a subject, there is no point uh, forcing yourself going through it unless it's the compulsory ones. Um, because it's important to really enjoy it at the same time. It's three years of your life from year nine, I would say to year 11, you're going to have to spend so many hours on a subject. So there's no point taking uh, musical arts if you don't love it. Um, we often tell our students not to choose a GCSE subject because their friends are doing it because they might not be really suited for that subject or they might struggle more than their peers. So we should always choose um, for ourselves and not just to follow the herd or to be with our best friend. And now also we warn children, don't choose a GCSE subject because you love your subject teacher, because um, there's a retention crisis in the UK currently. A lot of teachers are leaving the ranks and uh, moving on to other pastures, which means that your favorite teacher might um, unluckily not be there the, the year when you're going to sit your GCSEs. They might be on maternity leave or paternity leave or they might just move school. So choosing a subject because you really like the teacher might not turn out to be such a great strategy just in case the teacher leaves. So to choose subjects, remember as a parent or a student or an advisor to children in year nine, they should really keep all their options open. They should have as many GCSE subjects as possible for them and they should not choose a subject because of friendship or because of affinity with the teacher, because that might change. And this is not enough to devolve two years of your life on. So as a general rule, the best advice, I think, is to have more qualifications than less. This is the advice I apply in my personal life and in my children's lives. And I also advise that to my students. When I know that a student is academic, has potential, um, is keen on learning, enthusiastic, I will definitely advise them and sometimes push them to choose subjects that they don't necessarily need at that stage. For instance, I advise my students to go for the statistics GCSE in year 10. I will advise my students to sit for their RE GCSEs in year 10. And I also advise my students who speak a community language such as Turkish, Polish, Urdu, Hebrew, uh, Russian, German, to sit for their GCSE in their mother tongue in year 10. I think it's the best way for them to get a taste of what it is to sit an exam. It shows them how much they need to prepare 
it teaches them how to uh, get their revising revision timetable and it's just a taster for what's to come if they fail they can also learn to accept failure which is an the best skill you can get and if they pass if they succeed it's great for their cv at a later stage so i would definitely advise schools to set this up a year 10 gcse either community languages or statistics or re just to really ease the students into what exams are because there is something satisfying when you're equipped and when you succeed at an exam which i think we need to nurture and put in place from year 10. Um, my my child is sitting his french gcse this year he isn't currently in year 10 and i think it's a great taster for uh, next year when he will have to sit more GCSEs and also um, it is definitely something we can put in place in an MFL department for instance when we know that we have um, students who speak other languages we know that from year seven so it's something that can easily be organized um, obviously if your student or your child does not enjoy school in general if your child is not academic, if your child is anxious, struggling with either physical or mental health, um, you might want to step away from the exam pressure and it's very understandable. Exams do not matter as much as our children's welfare and mental health. Um, we know that some students suffered greatly during lockdown, so it is important that we also remind everybody parents children and teachers that gcse's are a stamp on a certificate that opens many doors but nothing is more valuable than our children's well-being and health so we should never go to these extremes um, that i have witnessed in some schools where um, i have a case in mind that is a tragic case of a student was in a grammar school and opened his um, GCSE results and was so distraught because he didn't have the results he was hoping for that he, he went on to commit suicide. So I think it is really important we also remind people that GCSEs are just a stamp on a certificate and that even if you fail your GCSEs, you can reset them when you're 25 or 45. I even have a friend who did her maths GCSE when she was 52. It's not the end of the world if you do not succeed at your GCSEs or if you can't sit your GCSEs, your GCSEs for a reason, medical um, or otherwise, because there is always other uh, options in the future. Your your help, your well-being in your life are paramount it's only an exam. So I really think it's important to stress this. Now, obviously, as I said, it's just a stamp on a certificate, but sometimes you need it. For my own apprenticeship last year, I had to reset or to uh, similar exams to uh, maths or English GCSEs. So yes, GCSEs matters, but not always, because if you've had a successful 20-year career in one field let's say 
and you want to apply to have a better job in a different company, no one's going to look at your GCSE results on your CV. They will have lost their importance by then. GCSEs are only important for the first step after secondary school. So your GCSE only matters for choosing a sixth form on your way to get another um, exam, which is the A-levels. After that, I don't think employers will check if you succeeded at your GCSEs with a pass or a seven. So you can see that the bar is set really high for some institutions, but at the end of the day, it remains just a rite of passage, just a stamp on a certificate. And its value decreases the more you work, the more you study, and the more you climb up the learning ladder. So this is all about short-term plan and long-term plan, isn't it? Um, if your child is adamant, they want to open their own coffee shop and start the new Starbucks chain, they might not need to spend too much time at university. They might just need to do a business course, either at sixth form or um, in another institution, and then get on with their plan of opening a business. If your child wants to be a doctor, then it's many, many, many years um, of studies ahead. So it really depends on your child. And if your child is like mine or my students, they don't know what they want to do because it's a big wide world. And who knows, age 14 or 15, what they're going to do in the next 30 years. Bearing in mind that with ChatGPT and AI, we might train our students for some subjects that might be completely irrele irrelevant in the next 10 years. So it is really important to keep an open mind and also focus on what makes your child tick. I know we need lots of girls in STEM, which is science, technology, computing, and maths. Um, but my daughter, despite me getting her as private tutor and trying to infuse her with an enthusiasm for maths, she's not so keen on the subject. So I'm not going to push this. I'm just going to let her do her GCSEs. And then if she wants to stop maths and never do it again, it will be absolutely fine. Because at the end of the day, we need to nurture talent. And if her talent is more into dance and performing arts, so be it. Um, I might go against some of my colleagues here, but it is also about what makes you tick because you're going to spend at least thousands of hours on a subject. So you really need to love it. Um, but there's also other practical things to bear in mind. If your child is not particularly motivated, if your student is not motivated and they do not do their best to get the GCSEs they need, they might not be able to attend the sixth form college they wanted to go to with their friends. And you might find yourself in the situation that a friend of mine was in when she had to drive her son because there was no direct train or commuting buses. Um, she had to drive her son to a college that was an hour and 15 minutes from their house. And he turned out to really dislike this college and he really struggled because he was missing his friends with whom he had been spending all his study, studying time since reception. So really 
tell your students that it is important that they, are they follow a strategy. It's like playing a chess game. It's a long game. You do not want to uh, do the bare minimum when you have the skills to do better because you might uh, miss out on a um, sixth form application you would really want to get. And if you're looking for a very specific manual oriented, oriented job, you might just only need to focus on the three compulsory GCSEs, which are English, maths, and science. So be strategic, keep many doors open, and also um, keep following your heart at the same time. That's a, a very difficult uh, plan to follow, isn't it? So yes, GCSEs have an impact on your life choices. They might have an impact on your commute and they might have an impact on your social life because if all your friends go to uh, sixth form and you didn't get in, you might feel left out. So I would say to reduce the anxiety because we do have some students who are really anxious, I would say it's always important to remind the students that if they fail this year, in the summer term, they can always reset the um, GCSEs in the autumn term. They can do it privately, or they can also strike an arrangement with their school and do it again. So there is no such thing as failure. There is al always another step to take. Uh, if we haven't made the grade, we shouldn't panic because we always have options, resetting the exam or trying a different course. So I think I'm going to let you listen to the news and we'll get back to our GCSE podcast straight after. Thank you, dear listener. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils. The article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago, but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer, and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera, unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance, schools were left to make their own decisions, with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did, they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced Survey Tool Teacher TAP, 
which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex, and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with, and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal ob obligations for single-sex schools and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the Key Stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since the census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh, who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown's Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not going to lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases, which seem modern, have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not going to lie, this has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. 
I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing, and that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again, assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially, you see more ads and make them more money. Which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TC Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. We are back after the news, dear listeners. So we were talking about um, the UK system with the exams that are named GCSEs. I wanted to also describe the opportunities that some families have if they want to limit the anxiety inducive times of sitting for GCSEs. You can ask schools if your child can sit some GCSEs a bit early if they have the possibility. It it might be done privately, but I want to warn you, it is a bit costly. The cheapest um, exam I could find in London was £300. It was to sit for the French GCSE. There was a speaking, reading, listening and writing exam. So it means that you need to go to the exam centre four times, uh, three times, my, my apologies, once for the speaking, uh, once for the reading and listening, and then the last time, the third time, for the writing. So it is quite expensive, but if that helps children who are struggling with their anxiety, it might be good to sit for some of the exams, such as languages or RE or history, the optional ones, you can sit them the year before in year 10. You could also try to sit for the maths one as a foundation in year 10, just to give your child um, a trial run of what a GCSE exam is. So you might ask your school, they might do it for you. And if you are home educating or if you want to go the private way, you can find exam centers where you can sit for a GCSE subject for approximately 300 pounds. Now, exams are a business. I did mention um, the 300 pound cost of sitting one uh, subject for GCSEs. There are two main organizations that are preparing the exams and the resources that teachers need to teach these exams. There's two one is a non-for-profit institution and one is a business. 
Pearson is an American company. It's a multinational and they offer exam resources and exam centers and examiners for marking. So Pearson is, as I said, a US company. They offer qualifications. They are doing a, a lot of uh, PR at the moment because there's going to be a change uh, in the exam for modern foreign languages. So you can go on the website and there's lots of uh, videos where they explain how the exams are prepared, how they how they are made, and what they will look like in the near future. So I will go deeper into the specifications for the MFL exams at a later stage in this podcast. I just wanted to remind you that there is so Pearson, which is an American multinational, and then there's AQA. AQA is a not-for-profit organization. It's a very old one. It started uh, in the 20th century. It was... Um, characterized by um, an effort to make learning more democratic and to allow more people to sit for exams. So it started in 1903 with the universities of Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool that united in establishing a joint matriculation board. The acronym stands as joint um, JMB and it became public exam providers at a later stage. So they started establishing a partnership with schools and providing support for teachers on how to access um, their material. In 1953, it changed to the Associated Examining Board, AEB, and it started offering GCE, which stood for General Certificate of Education. And that was for all secondary schools in the UK. This was uh, a way to make a centralized, normalized and normative assessment and formative assessment for all the students in secondary schools in the UK. And in 1992, the JMB merged with the Northern Examination Association and they created the NEAB, Northern Examinations and Assessment Board. And 10 years later or eight years later, they started um, as the AEB, and finally now, a lot of acronyms I told you in education, they are called the AQA, Assessment and Qualifications Alliance. So that's the not-for-profit organization. So the AQA, I had a look at the board, the people who are in control of the AQA, and I noticed um, there's the, their pictures on the website. You can check it out for yourself at aqa.com. Um, not so diverse. Um, there was four, one, two, three, four, five, five men for three women. So we are not reaching the parity there in representation for gender. And there is mostly um, middle class white uh, board members. There's only one person who is from an ethnic minority. Um, what really made me um, blink twice, I would say, is that there was only one person at the head of the AQA who had been a teacher. And this person is Claire Thompson. And all the others have 
studied at university, seems to have a lot of uh, background in um, companies. There's two accountants. There's someone who has a poetry um, publication. But there is only one who was a teacher, which I think is quite telling because this is an exam board. This is who's preparing the exams and who's who's providing resources and who's dealing with examination and marking. And yet only one of the people who are making decisions is a former teacher. Now, their job is very diverse in the sense that they have to obviously set the papers, award qualifications, they have to give exam support, they have to deal with electronic marking, and I'm sure they are following the chat GPT development with keen eyes. They have to make sure the exams are uh, confidential until the exam day, and they have to mark. So it is a big job at a national level. Now, it's not without a few uh, difficulties because, as you know, Secretary of Education love to add their marks or their touch to education and they do change exams um, when they are given power. So in 2022, we started having the MFL exams changed a little bit, which creates a lot of work for the exam boards and um, AQA and Pearson. And they've had to interview many teachers and try and make sense of the recommendations given by the exam board. So there's going to be changes to the GCSE for French, German and Spanish, but we do not have more information from the Department of Education and Ofqual, which is the exam board. So, so far, so good. We are preparing for a change, but we're not really sure if it's going to be implemented. At the moment, we are um, so supporting and um, working on the specifications, but they haven't been confirmed. So we need to, to wait till um, 2023, the autumn, to actually have the answer from the Department for Education. What does it mean? It means that our current year eight, so st students who are aged uh, 12 or 13, depending on um, their date of birth. So our 12 to 13 year old students are gonna sit their GCSE in 2026, and their exam will be different in languages. It will be the first time, for instance, if um, the Department for Education confirms these new changes, it will be the first time that students learning French will have a dictation task in their writing exam. So I'm quite curious to see what's going to happen, and I'll tell you more when I know more. Now, I did say Pearson is a multinational, an American company, and um, the bigger you get, sometimes the harder it is to, to keep track of your organization because this multinational is not without controversy. There's been quite a few blunders um, that happened in exams over the years. I'll give you an example of blunders that were revealed on Twitter last year. Pearson offered in its Edexcel geography exam a map of Africa where they switched the names for um, Ghana, Gabon, sorry, and the Republic of Congo. So that was quite uh, 
it was not a very decolonized exam paper, shall I say. Um, there is also um, on Twitter teachers revealing in 2022 that AQA, um, it's not just Pearson, it can be AQA, had informed physics teachers that circuits would not be part of the GCSE exam that year, to be followed by adding circuits to the GCSE physics paper. So there is a history of testing problems. And if you don't believe me, you can go on Fair Test, which is a website, an American website, that has been um, counting how many times the company Pearson has made test um, issues and test problems. So you can check it out online. Fiat, uh, it's called Fair Test. And the most recent, which has been in the news this week, and this is why I decided to do my podcast on exams, 2023, May, Pearson, multinational and American company, has made a mistake in its history papers. So the exam board was very swift to apologize, but it is hundreds of thousands of students who've been sitting the history exam this year, and they were told something that was inaccurate. So I will give you the exact um, quotes. The paper said that um, there was Thomas Sydenham's book, Observaciones Medicae, which is um, observations on medical observations, it's in Latin. And in the history test, it said it was published in 1576. Now, the problem is that it was it was published in 1676, so 100 years later. And the students were asked to describe the, the impact of this treaty written by Thomas Sydenham on um, UK medicine or medical field. So the problem is that if you have the wrong date, you're going to get the wrong era and you're going to make assumptions. So I don't know how this is going to be resolved. I assume um, the people who are going to mark this history test are going to take the blunder into account. But it's pretty poor when you think this is something that is presented to so many students and uh, they're going to be stressed and they're going to doubt themselves if they're clever enough to realize that there's a problem with the date. So a very big blunder by Pearson. I'm going to read their apology because let's let's try and be objective. Pearson published their apology. It says, all of our assessment materials go through a rigorous process in which writers, subject experts and assessment experts collaborate to approve the final versions that candidates will see. And mistakes are rare. We work tirelessly on ensuring that our assessments are error free and allow candidates to perform their best. So that was uh, um, Pearson apologizing for its 2023 history blunder. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. 
our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Now, you might just think it's funny. And if you're a teacher, you might think it's not the first time. But if you're a parent, you might be fuming. And I agree with what Julie McCullough is saying. She's the director of policy at the Association of School and College Leaders. And she said, I quote, It is disappointing that there was an error in this paper and particularly frustrating that we have already had such a problem so early in the exam series. We have seen the assurance from Pearson at Excel that they have tried and tested procedures in place to ensure that students will not be impacted. But we remain concerned about how such systems can account for the fact that an error in a paper can knock the confidence of a student to the extent that they can do less well in the rest of the paper. And Julie McCullough is very, very um, clear that there is a consequence on uh, confidence and it might affect our young people. So this is obviously just an exam, but it has a lot of importance on their life choices and life options in the coming years. So we would hope that there wouldn't be any blunders anymore. Now, I'll give you my personal experience of using these um, companies because I do use both Edexcel and AQA. And my impression is that the exams, and I'm very much aware this is due to the Department for Education and Ofqual because they're the ones who give directives. So the exams are very elitist, particularly for French. The marking is extremely harsh and there is, um, it's built in the system. It's trying to trick children so that they misunderstand answers. And I'll give you an example because my, my child is a native speaker of French. So obviously he has an advantage when he sits a language exam, but still because of the way the exams are set, they are meant to make it more difficult, which makes native speakers make mistakes. And I'm sure if I gave the exam paper to French nationals, uh, they would also make mistakes because the answers are evasive at times and unclear. I'll give you an example of how we trick students when we shouldn't be doing this. There are cognates. What's a cognate? A cognate is a word that sounds the same in many languages. So I'll give you an, an example. You have the word interesting, and interesting sounds the same and is written in a very similar way in Spanish, in French, and also in Danish. In Spanish, it's interesante, in French, it's intéressant, and in Danish, it's interessant. So these cognates are a godsend because they are easy to understand. In some languages, such as Russian or Mandarin or uh, Urdu, you're not going to find cognates, um, which makes them very hard to learn. But in 
French or Spanish, there's lots of cognates. But the problem I noticed in exams is that they do not use these cognates as much. And sometimes when they could have chosen to use a cognate, they deliberately go for a word that doesn't sound anywhere close to the English word. And this is what tricks um, native speakers. And this is what makes it really hard and discourages people who want to study a language in this country. I'll give you another example. Um, as I said, my son is a native speaker. And he found a word in his reading paper, in uh, his French reading paper. It said renseignement. He had no idea what that meant. So he didn't feel that, he didn't succeed at that um, particular question. And now, a renseignement is a piece of information. If the uh, people who prepared the exam had just used the word information, all the students, whether they're native speakers or just English speaker, they would have understood the question. But because a choice was made at one point to put a different synonym that is absolutely impossible to guess, the students are going to lose a mark. And this is this elitist view that children should know more than just the cognates and, and know more and more vocab that discourages students from enjoying um, their exams and, and also enjoying learning the language. It is marked too harshly. I'll give you another example that happens a lot. There is uh, the word job in French. We use it because it comes from the English, so we, we borrowed it. Instead of using job in a French text, the people who make the exams are always going to use other synonyms that are impossible to guess, such as métier and emploi. Emploi might be close to employ, but it's, it's going to be confusing. I'm just wondering who makes the decisions to make the exams harder, whereas we already know there's less and less students who want to sit French GCSEs, and there's less and less students who want to learn French. There is a serious issue there about making learning a language appealing, and we are failing year on year because we make exams too difficult. I could go on and give you examples of meaningless bits of conversation that are used in the listening. Um, with very confusing time markers and questions that can lead a native speaker to doubt themselves. I do not have time to do this, but I just wanted you to, to be aware that this could be made more uh, fair and less difficult. And it wouldn't make the language suffer. It's just about making people feel more empowered and more confident. Now, what are the issues I'm facing when I'm trying to prepare my students for their GCSEs, whether it's for French or another subject? What I notice a lot is that students sabotage, they self-sabotage. In extreme cases, they completely give up. And I've seen it many times. They don't turn up for the speaking exams or they give a blank copy. They just write their names and just give a blank copy. These are tragic uh, examples, but they are happening all over the country. So it's thousands of children who are self-sabotaging by not even trying to do their exam papers. 
Now, there is also children who self-sabotage unconsciously because they just do not know how to get these strategies that are really helpful. What I see that breaks my heart as a, as a teacher is children who rush through a paper, do not take the time to read the questions twice before they start answering, rush to write an answer and never look back on it, do not check their answers and sometimes forget words in their answers, do not even check that they've completed all the pages, I see children leaving blanks, even if it's a multiple question where they could just put A, B or C randomly and still try to, to earn one or two marks. And I do also see students who do not attempt to complete the full exam paper. They would just do the first half because it's um, in English, for instance, and not the second one because they have to do it in French. So I see a lot of self-sabotaging. Now, there is lots of advice given by um, the, the um, resources uh, providers, such as Pearson and AQA. I'm not going to go into it, but the, the resources are on the internet. Any parent who wants to help their child, any student who needs advice, any teachers who want to print a poster with some last minute advice, the resources are there. You can go on the Pearson website, you can go on the AQA website, or you can just go through YouTube. There's many, many videos of teachers explaining how to do revision cards or how to um, sit for the exam in the best conditions. With the internet, knowledge is at a click away. And yet, I do think that these resources are underused. Why? Well, I think there is a, a definite lack of interest and lack of confidence. I've noticed it, not just because of um, the pandemic. I think a lot of students do not see the point in doing a language for their GCSE or a history for their GCSE. Um, they also think it's too hard and they give up before they've even tried. And they also think it's not needed. How many times have I heard, I do not need to do my French GCSE because it's not needed, it's not required for sixth form entry. And this is where I think institutions are failing the children because it doesn't give them high expectations and they're fa failing their colleagues in secondary school. We are constantly trying to explain to the students that our job is valid, that our job is authentic and that our purpose is, um, is, to, is to provide them with something important. And yet, when they approach sixth form entry, the students are told, you only need maths, English, and science. You don't need French. You don't need Spanish. You don't need history. You don't need geography. We don't care. We just want to see maths, English, and science. Why do we lower our expectations when we reach higher levels? This is really mind-boggling to me. It might be because I come from a different educational system, but I do think we need to change these requirements so that they reflect the importance of having varied subjects and general knowledge. I find it shocking that not 
all 14 and 15 year old students in the UK study history. Because history is understanding our past in order to, to, to apprehend our, our present and to change our future. If we don't know our past, we are lost. We are uprooted. So it's really shocking that it's not a prerequisite for entry at most six forms, in my opinion. Now, I could make you a list of all the things that are necessary for your uh, students to succeed at their GCSEs. This is already available online. I might do it one day, but this is not the place. Today, I just wanted to talk about the exam in itself. Um, we know the strategies, being organized, having a clear plan, having a revision timetable, practicing with past papers, attending um, interventions and extra sessions that are offered for free by the schools, and also working with a buddy. We know all these um Having a long-term long goal is essential, particularly for languages, for instance. If you're interested in languages, you know that you can use apps to support your learning. BBC Bite Size, Duolingo, uh, Memrise, Revision World. Everything is a click away. So this is not the point of this podcast. This podcast was more to raise awareness that GCCs are in the news. GCCs are really important. But what is important is what we do with these. It's just a stamp on a certificate. But what does it open? What doors does it open? I don't have all the answers, but I would like to know why we chose to uh, reduce the number of prerequisite subjects for entry at sixth form. Is it because we knew we would have less students successful at entry if we reduced it? Is it because we want to level down? Or is it because we do not think learning history or learning a language is important in 2023? I am puzzled by this situation. And then I realized that in most uh, top universities, the Russell Group ones, it's an, a huge exam pressure because everybody has to have 10 subjects with seven, eight or nine grades. So there, there seems to be a big discrepancy between the top universities that are so particular and the local sixth form that just relies on three subjects and not always the ones that are going to be studied afterwards. So a lot of questions are raised when we look at um, GCSE exams in England. They are anxiety prone. They are in the news for good and bad reasons, they are an important rite of passage. And because I'm a teacher, I do enjoy school. That's why I'm a teacher. I do see the value in doing a national centralized exam that everybody sits. I find it a unifying factor. Um, in France, when we all sit at the, the French baccalauréat, we all have a memory of opening our papers and facing the philosophy question, for instance. It's something we all do and we can reflect and look back on when we're older and, and remember, ah, oh, that philosophy paper or that philosophy question. It's a shared experience and it has its, its pros and its advantages because of that. And as I said, 
presented in a good way with support from the community, the family and the school, it can also be something that children are proud to succeed at. Some of my students are really elated at the idea of having their statistics GCSE done and dusted in year 10. So we can make exams important in a positive way. But what matters is that we also make them as what they are. And it is just a paper. And if you have to reset it many years down the line, it's fine. What matters is that you learn to understand failure, experience it, and then bounce back. There's a, a deep learning curve in sitting for the GCSEs. And I think we can always present exams in a way that is not destroying our children's self-esteem, but encouraging them to face challenges and bounce back. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Let's hear uh, the news one more time and then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils. The article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer, and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance, schools were left to make their own decisions, with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did, they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced survey tool Teacher Tap, which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex, and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with, and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, 
but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal ob obligations for single-sex schools and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the key stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced, whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since their census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh, who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown's Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not gonna lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases, which seem modern, have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not going to lie, this has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing, and that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? 
The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially, you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, want to get in touch at TC Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listener. Today's podcast was on the General Certificate of Secondary Education, which is more commonly known as GCSE. We talked about when the GCSE was created, who seems to be organizing it, and what blunders sometimes happen in the exam content. We also talked about the pressure that children are under and how to choose the best options for any student who wants to have a chance at selecting their best sixth form or uh, even for those who want to join the workforce. I hope you find it interesting. I'm gonna see you after the holidays. I'm taking a break for um, some well um, (laughs) awaited um, holidays and I wish you a wonderful week. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.